What's up, party people? This is Ian Lenhart coming at you from Miami, Florida. And word on the street is that it's a damn good day to have a damn good day. And now I'm so excited to introduce today's guest. And I got to say, we have been having outstanding guests recently on the Damn Good Day show. And I just want to say thank you to all our listeners who listen to the Jones, talk the good word with good people, and support this mission. Because without you, we wouldn't be able to bring on such incredible talent. But let me tell you about the man, Mr. Dr. William Lee. He is a world-renowned physician, scientist, speaker, and author of Eat to Beat Disease, the new science of how your body can heal itself. He is best known for leading the Angiogenesis Foundation. His work has impacted more than 70 diseases, including cancer, diabetes, blindness, heart disease, and obesity. You may have heard his TED Talk, Can We Eat to Starve Cancer, which has garnered more than 11 million views. And on top of all of that, Dr. Lee is also the author of over 100 scientific publications in leading journals such as Science, the New England Journal of Medicine, and The Lancet. He has served on the faculties of Harvard Medical School, Tufts University, and Dartmouth Medical School. And on this episode, we talked about so many different topics. I mean, we really got into it. We talked things like fasting, his stance on the medical system, the pros, the cons, as well as nutrition. And I really enjoy this conversation because Dr. Lee is just so... I really enjoy this conversation... And I really enjoyed this conversation because Dr. Lee is just so well, and I really, I really enjoyed this conversation because Dr. Lee is just so well-spoken and such a genuine human. I was able to ask him some very controversial questions surrounding fasting, the medical system, different nutrition breakthroughs. And he just gave such a good clarity to myself on things that I've been very curious about. I know I say this all the time, but this could be our best podcast yet. And so without further ado, episode 128 with Dr. William Lee, let's jump into it. And we're live, Dr. William Lee. My man, thank you so much for coming on today. I'm so excited about this. I've been looking forward to it all week. First off, you are one of those those people that is going to be on Forbes magazine every other week in the future. The amount of stuff that you've done in the past in terms of all the research you've done and, and spreading a really good mission of eating clean, beating disease. It's so great for you to be on the show, man. Thanks for coming. Well, thanks very much, Ian. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, looking forward to our conversation. So it's interesting because you've had the whole background as, you know, being professors, working with universities, like you've had that thing. And now you've gone into kind of being this entrepreneur that is, you know, building this brand and, and teaching people to eat clean. Uh, wh- where, at what point in your career did you kind of make that switch where you're like, okay, I want to go into this direction? Was Were you inspired by someone or, or where did that start? Yeah, you know, so um, I've worn lots of hats over my career uh, and the entrepreneurial hats the one I've always actually had. So when I was an undergrad, you know, I was a, I, I majored in the sciences. I was in biochemistry, but I actually started a graphic design firm uh, while I was in college uh, to be able to work on big projects, uh, sort of completely in parallel with my day job. So think about it like, you know, like Clark Kent versus, or Peter Parker versus whatever happens uh, after hours. So I was actually you know, doing business even when I was an undergrad. Um, I did a gap year uh, before I went to medical school and I actually lived in the Mediterranean. And so this is, you know, 25 years long before anybody ever talked about the Mediterranean diet as being popular. And I was interested in a couple of interesting things sort of food and health and culture. And if you really think about it, 
those things are drivers for entrepreneurs, right? So, I mean, people are now, in today's world, people are actually really figuring out new ways to actually service the consumer interest in healthier foods, better foods, next generation foods. You know, culture is um, not static. It's something that's surrounding us, but it actually has a past. And I was very interested in the past. Specifically, I was interested in the Renaissance. And what I, what I was interested in the Renaissance was the, the transition between the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, and the Golden Ages. In other words, I was looking for at what point did, you know, sort of people walking around in monks' robes and, you know, you know, suddenly blossom into this era of invention and opportunity and innovation. That to me was really, really interesting because it made me wonder, well, where are we in the spectrum of the golden age or the renaissance of today, right? Like, uh, wh wh where does the future bring? It always made me wonder about uh, the future and how do you actually bring the, pull the rug of the future closer to us? So when I went to medical school and, you know, it, it's a medical school is a lot of work but it's not difficult work. It's kind of just digesting 4,000 years of medical knowledge and then being able to actually practice it. Um, I, I, I carried with me this sort of like this idea that, okay, I've got, I've got to develop, I have an idea, I want to keep on developing it. So one of the things that I came up with is um, rather than look for, I've always, oh, I guess another thing about me is I've always been a little bit of a maverick. I always sort of thought a little bit differently. I, you know, I'm a I'm good with mastering the system that I'm in, but I always have a third eye looking out for what are the where are their opportunities, where's the unmet need, and you know without becoming the person who is excommunicated because I'm too far off the reservation, I'm able to fully master what's in front of me, you know, uh, get your boxes checked, no problem with that. That's how I became a doctor. But I realized that you know the, the the opportunities are really about pushing the boundaries. And when you're pushing the boundaries, sometimes you don't want to actually piss off the people who are actually um, in the the center of the playing field. You want to just be diplomatic about it. So I think that's the other thing that I've actually realized about brand building is that you know your brand is <clears throat> continuous who you are and how people perceive you. So um, anyway, I mean that's a that's a long wind up to, to, to talk about what we're going to talk about, but. But I, I, I guess what I'm trying to tell you is that I, I've, I've had sort of this the, the innovation bug in me for a long time. Well, it's good that you have that because I mean, medical school is brutal. I feel, and I see it in my brother's career. He's a he's a surgeon. He's a fourth year resident out in Chicago, and you know he's in his early 30s and he's just been grinding it out. And I, I think a lot of times when people get into the medical field, they you know get in it for the, obviously the, the right reasons, but the amount of work that they put you through to to come out the other end with that, the words DR, I mean, it's brutal. And for you to kind of have what we could call like a side hustle or things that keep you dreaming of the future while going through just those years of straight core study, I feel like that's a, a big hack for people going through the system. No, no doubt. And, you know, basically you get your butt kicked in med school and in training, but, you know, I think something I always ask myself is, um, do I want to be a follower or a leader? Do I want to actually practice uh, what's known or am I more drawn towards the unknown? And I think that for me, the answer has always been, what is the, what's on the horizon? What's beyond the horizon? How can I, the, the, the privilege we have in medicine, by the way, is actually using science to get to the future. You know, there's a great uh, quote by uh, a novelist, an American novelist named e, uh, 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 Doctorow. 
and uh, and he basically said um, writing is like driving at night. You can't uh, see beyond your headlights, but you can actually make the whole trip that way. And that's really how science is. You're always just looking at the frontier of your headlights to figure out where you're going to actually go next. And you know, for me, it's always been driving at night with my, my lights on high beams, trying to look at as far as I possibly can. That said, I will tell you, I've actually mentored a lot of students uh, and, and um, I've also mentored doctors who I recognize. You, you know, when you meet somebody, I don't know if your brother's like this, who, you know, they're, they're really good at what they do in, in medicine, but they, you can tell they've got this, something extra that kind of star quality they want to get out to do stuff and so i i've um, in my career i've actually mentored quite a few number of those people and they've gone on to do really awesome things i love that and you know how in this world of clean eating and guts and i'll just give you a quick background i so i had um cybo small intestinal bacteria overgrowth mm -hmm. and uh, i made this youtube video and it went pretty viral and i have these people hitting me up all about it. i eventually beat it by doing like the elemental diet, which is essentially like fasting. But in that process, I was able to meet a bunch of naturopaths and naturopaths kind of dominate this clean eating healthy world, right? That kind of difference between Western and Eastern medicine. Yep. Um, do you feel that any, like, I guess what I'm trying to say is that when you become a doctor, you get a certified DR on your resume and you become a doctor, right? But at the end of the day, like it's your independent research and your commitment to the research that allows you to continuously, you know, expand, grow and become fascinated with the topic. At what point does someone just coming out of medical school and being a doctor make you truly qualified to treat certain issues versus people that let's say haven't gone to medical school, but have buried themselves in the research since they were young? Wow. Okay. That's a, that's a lot to unpack. Uh, what I will tell you is my experience has been, now I, I've done research, you know, I was, when I was in like junior high school, I was in a research lab. So I, I do have very deep roots in the, in the areas. So first of all, you need to realize most doctors are not researchers. Most doctors are people that are just studying and trying to figure out how to apply knowledge to help other fellow human being. Good people using information to try to help other good people. Um, researchers are a little but different because it gives us, uh, as a researcher, uh, we not only know a mile wide, which is what a lot of doctors have, a researcher gives you a mile deep view. And that mile deep view is sometimes daunting because you realize how much you don't know. Like if you're a, re a really good scientist, Ian will tell you, it won't tell you, won't brag about everything they know. They will spend time, when scientists get together, we spend all of our time talking about what we don't know. All right. Uh, and that's that's often a misconception between the people who are not in science and not researchers. They're like, oh, man, those guys are so smart. They must be talking about all the stuff they know. No, no. Researchers actually spend most of their time talking about what we don't know. Now, how did I get involved with healthy eating and food as medicine and eating to beat disease um, is a little bit different because I uh, I got involved with biotechnology. This is like 25 years ago. I. I I um, started an organization called the Angiogenesis Foundation. We're a third, scientific third party. We look at how blood vessels are the common denominator of disease. And using that fulcrum, uh, we actually been involved with, I've been involved with a successful development of 41 FDA approved treatments for cancer, diabetes and complications, vision loss. And it's been a really a thrilling ride to be able to, you know, help uh, generate successful technologies that are 
you know, they, these are blockbuster drugs, right? Um, uh, but one of the things that I realized when I, with all these successes that, uh, you know, most people who are involved in research, medical research, you know, you can be involved with one successful treatment. It is, uh, it is like the, that's living the dream. Okay. For me, I, I leverage this idea of common denominators and that actually has scalability because if you can figure out, if you can pull a bow back and send an arrow through one disease, if you know the common denominator, all of a sudden that thing is going to go through 70 diseases at the same time. And that's scalability, that's kind of innovation, that's kind of creativity, that is um, thinking a little bit outside of the box. But I will tell you, in developing disease treatments, I realize that while that is great, the missed opportunity, the unmet need is to prevent disease in the first place. Okay. And so if you're going to talk about prevention, you can't talk about drugs. You got to talk about something else. And so that's when I realized like food is the perfect um, uh, uh, material uh, to be able to use for prevention. The problem with nutrition, with food traditionally, is that it has not been studied as rigorously as drugs have been studied. And that's been the long debate. We got more evidence than drugs. It's better science. And food is kind of waffly. Well, so what I did, this is 10 years ago now, I'm like, look, I helped to develop the systems that we use to develop drugs in. Why don't I just throw some food into that equation and see what I get, right? So here's, here's a quick, great analogy. I, I literally thought of this like a decade ago. Go into a, if you go into a university lab, cancer research lab, you'll see people in white coats, you know, bending over microscopes. They'll go on their computer and literally they can log on, get some chemotherapy or some new drug, and, and have it overnight shipped, order it online, or have it overnight shipped the next day. When it arrives, they'll open up the package, they'll take a spoonful of it out, put it into a lab dish, you know, uh, in a test tube kind of thing. Right. And within a, a, a couple of days, or maybe even a couple of hours, they'll know if this treatment actually has an effect, this, this chemical has an effect against cancer. However, right. yeah, oh yeah, that's how cancer research is done. Now, take the same person, have them pick up a phone, and call a pizza and a salad to be delivered to them in 15 minutes, faster than overnight. And it arrives, piping hot, or, or salad in a plastic clamshell. And now you ask them, what does that do to cancer? And the researcher will scratch their head and not know what to do. That's what I realized is that there's this incredible gap. Like people cannot study food. They don't know how to study foods. So and that's what I set on to doing is to figure out how do you take foods that we eat deconstruct it and put it into these systems to be able that we use for drug development so we can really start to generate that kind of evidence. And that's food as medicine the way I do it. I love that. Thanks for going deep into that. And how much I like that, like you mentioned the nutrition aspect, because it seems so almost obvious, right? When you talk about it, right? Like we are what we eat, like health is so important. When I was a young child, you know, my parents fed me all sorts of high fructose corn syrup products. And so did a lot of other parents because there just wasn't the research done. And we just didn't know about these inflammation and, and additives. At what point, you know, there's a lot of, you could almost call it like conspiracy theories, right? But at what point do like doctors not recommend nutrition plans and more so treat disease versus treat it before it happens? Do you think there's a systematic problem or do you think that there's lack of incentive to do that or is there no problem at all well look i mean i i think we're at this inflection point where doctors anywhere around the world no matter what their specialty is 
is realizing that our health systems are collapsing under the weight of disease. And, there, and the diseases that are collapsing under, like cancer and heart disease and diabetes and obesity, they're not diseases that we have really good solutions for. And so we've got to look for prevention. Uh, and so I think that we're at this turning point. But yes, to, to, your, um, to acknowledge what you were saying, for decades, maybe the last 70 or 80 years, the training of doctors has been through a system that has been focused on disease, not focused on health, okay? Focused on uh, uh, therapies that you can actually uh, prescribe medications or operate on, surgeon, do surgery on a procedure, um, uh, as opposed to nutrition or other lifestyle, sleep exercise. And in fact, quite the opposite, there's been so much on drugs and surgery and so much on disease that in fact, it's almost occupied all the space, the mental space during medical education and postdoctoral training like residency, um, that there's no not a lot of room that's been in the cur traditional curriculum um, to talk about nutrition and diet and lifestyle and all that other kind of stuff. So what winds up happening, and I'm sure your brother has had this experience as well, is that you know, you're barely able to make it, just hanging on, getting through your your day with the traditional stuff. But where's all this other stuff come from? Doctors, by the way, you, you gotta walk the walk before you can talk to talk. And doctor's lifestyle is not that healthy during training. You know, you don't you're not eating a lot of healthy things. Although I think that's changing changing now. The younger generation wants, demands something different. So I think that's another space for innovation. One of the, my missions in life is to figure out how we can actually transform medical education so that we can make the young doctors in training. Uh, uh, they can have the agency to improve their own lives, okay, as part of their education. Uh, and it's also going to set them up for the rest of their life as well as actually transfer that knowledge to their patients and to their community around them. And so, you know, I think there's a there's there's an entrepreneurial way to do this. I haven't figured out exactly what it is. Any of your viewers or listeners that want to talk to me about any ideas, I'm I'm definitely game to do it. Um, I've been involved with, you know, I, I've been on the faculty of medical schools. I know about teaching. I don't think we're going to actually be able to achieve that goal of transforming medicine using in, to include nutrition uh, diet and lifestyle by just going through the mainstream establishment. I think we're going to have to find some way that is um, uh, going to be disruptive. Uh, it's going to come from the outside. It's kind of like social media. It's going to it's going to be a surround sound way, and it's going to involve you know the the people, not the professors, the, the students, to really kind of get involved in it. And so that to me is uh, is something I'm very very excited to actually work on. That's awesome. Your attitude towards this is so refreshing and exciting and, and makes me think like, wow, like the more people we have that think like you and want to reinvent versus just play a part is just going to help us continue this mission. And, and I think what you're doing is beautiful and perfect. Obviously, you know, you, you speak with people way more uh, diverse than, and intelligent than I am. But the fact that you are out here putting your pieces in play, building a business around it, because essentially you have to build a business if you're going to scale it to more people, right? And the systems aren't set up because the systems are more built for the traditional past practices. And there's a roadmap there and people love a good roadmap. So for you to have to pave your own way, there's challenges associated with that. And I liked what you mentioned about the research center, like your research studies on, on 
on stopping or, or slowing cancer and all that is so amazing. And it, it reminds me of an experience that I had with Tufts Medical Center. Um, so big fan of Tufts. Uh, I had an eye issue because when I had LASIK eye surgery, I got it shortly after I started having SIBO and IBS issues. So what happened is this really rare situation where essentially my corneal nerves never regrew. So I had neuropathic pain. It was pretty miserable. And I ended up seeing lots of different doctors. They gave me all different types of studies. I went to Tufts Medical Center and it was a game changer. I mean, they looked at it from a completely different standpoint, top of the line testing. They used something like called a, a refractomer. I forgot what it's called. Um, but they looked into the back of the nerves of my eye, Dr. Helen Wu, she's an angel, and they do studies and, and learn. I think that that was such a revolutionary look at me because I was in dire need to see people like you that are taking a, you know, a, a research step like, hey, let's see what works here versus just going in and getting prescribed something. No, I mean, that's so true. Um, uh, you know, I my my clinical training has been working with really really sick people who are in desperate need um and uh, i think that why i enjoy that is because number one these are people that really need help uh and it's not that easy to find ways to help them and so it's a it's a challenge it, it you know you have to put yourself up against this steep curve to figure out how you're actually going to help somebody else and that's the biggest privilege in medicine um I want to comment on something you talk about, sort of entrepreneurship and business. Um, you know, I I'm somebody who's actually um, not just a doctor and a scientist and and an author. I wrote a book called Eat to Beat Disease, but um, I uh, you know I'm a business person. I, I serve on boards of public and private companies. Um, what I think that you're talking about uh, in terms of your audience is, you know, what have I learned that's really important to be able to bring something new to the table that is going to allow uh, prosperity, okay, however you want to define it. I think it's about value creation. Value creation is the principle of entrepreneurship. Um, you know, I mean, the difference between somebody who basically just figures out what they can sell through multi-level marketing and just figuring out how to put it on, you know, online, that's not necessarily creating value. That's actually retail, you know, trying to figure out how you can actually just sell stuff. Creating value is a more, much more profound thing, and I think everyone has their own um, their own uh, gyroscope of where you feel like you can add value. It may not even be a business; it could be with your family, it could be with you know your parents, it could be with your neighbors, it could be with your business, um, or it could be a new business. But I think that that's one thing that I've learned that I would share with your viewers is that and your listeners is if you can find how you want to create value. And then this is where, for me as a researcher, I use research to create value. I'm addressing questions, I'm peeling back the layers of the onion, uncloaking new discoveries. And, and rather than just staring at them, I'm trying to figure out like, well, okay, where does that information that I'm seeing, that I'm part of discovering, how do we actually put that to use in a way that's going to have an impact? That's value creation. Once you, I think that to me, that's how you blueprint uh, uh, entrepreneurship, uh, you know, otherwise you're just coming up with something to make some, a quick buck. Right. And then everyone can provide value because if you can, on the most simple level, tie your shoe better than 50% of the population, now all of a sudden you can help them do that. Right. And people, that's right. You know, 
Yeah, no, and I'll tell you, the, the, other, the other thing that I'll tell you is that, um, and this is, I think, something that I, I teach, you know, when I'm trying to mentor people with, with businesses, this value creation, is that don't focus on the point of sale, all right? That's salesmanship, which is very important. Marketing and sales, sales and marketing, very important. But actually, if you're going to focus on creating value, and you know this whole idea that they teach in business school of lost leaders, you know, like you got to give something away to get something back. Absolutely true. Identify the value you want to create. Recognize that you know, like you don't have to hoard everything. Give stuff away. Let people see what the value is. Demonstrate your value. You don't need a ROI on that. The ROI is proving your value, not so much the cash. Then you can actually move forward to develop a business model that can actually support your idea. Like, I mean, I I'm, I'm probably preaching to the choir here, but I think for people that are trying to get into this space, you know, um, uh, this is something. And, and if you have any doctors who are listening or medical people, this is really, I think, what I can share from my own career because what what makes me unusual is that I'm a I'm a physician and a scientist who has actually been involved with the business side of things. Yeah. Well, you have that abundance mentality too, right? So you say, Hey, let's put out there, let's prove value to the marketplace and people will come back tenfold once they show that, Hey, look, I've done my part, which is, which makes total sense. Right. Well, I mean, I'll, t- and I'll tell you, I'll give you an example of something that's going on right now. Uh, I did, I, I came up with this during the pandemic. Everybody's locked down, you know, we're all sitting at home. Nobody's certain what's going to happen. I started to think about where, where does what I know can, what, what can, what, what do I know that actually can be helpful to other people? And I realized that people were not able to get information from their doctors because doctors and nobody wanted to go to the hospital when she were sick. And frankly, the, the medical community couldn't do much during the pandemic at, at in the early days. Um, but everybody was connected to their, more connected to their kitchen, their pantry. People were zipping out to the store to go buy groceries and bringing it back and we started to reconnect with our food and I realized that, you know what, this is the opportunity to, um, uh, in a time of, of, uh, of uncertainty and, and chaos, to really be able to help people get more grounded on how they should select food and what do we know about food? How can food activate our health defense systems in our body? What is health anyway? Health isn't just the absence of disease, it's our body's health defense systems firing in all cylinders. And guess what? Doctors don't, you don't need a doctor to help you with that. Your food can actually help you fire up your health defenses and right size your your gut, right size your brain, right size your blood vessels and your organs. And so one of the things I created is a, is a masterclass. And, you know, so using the, te- the technologies that arose, you know, and started to be used wisely because frankly, who was using Zoom in before 2020? But not that many people were like Zoomers, right? Now everybody's using Zoom or something similar. And so I basically said, look, here's a technology that's also arising in, in space. Let's go ahead and start teaching people around the world. So so here's a little bit of my paying it forward, creating, you know, thinking about the value I can create and just putting it out there. Um, I've been doing these master classes. They've been doing like every other month or so. It's amazing the response. I'm able to get like thousands of people to sign up. I, I one time had 8,000 people from 30 countries sign on to hear for an hour everything that I could share with them about how foods can actually improve their health. And I was, and what I do is I share new information each time. And so what I do as an entrepreneur is completely free. I want people to hear about this because I want to attract people 
to, um, I want them to find their own sense of purpose and their own sense of interest. I don't want to club people over the head. I want to tell them something that they want to hear, you know? And so again, this is a little bit of the, the same thing I told you about, like when I was in, even in college, you know, I'm always trying to think through um, where is there, wh what's exciting to me? Where can value be created? Uh, how can we use a little creativity and, and, and what's available to us to actually pull together something that could change the world? And, you know, and you never know if something's really going to change the world, but every bat is the chance to take a swing at the bat. While we're on the subject, how can people check out your masterclass? Oh, great. Well, uh, uh, just come to my website, uh, drwilliamleeli.com, drwilliamleeli.com. Uh, you can also, uh, 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 my masterclass is on there. You can sign up for it. You can also uh, find me on Instagram or Facebook. It's at drwilliamleeli, at drwilliamleeli. And, um, you know, I'm always putting information out there. Uh, and the information of the masterclass is uh, going to be there as well. I love it. it. One thing, being someone that has read a lot of the health books, you know, how not to die brain makers, um, just like different ones that come to my mind. Uh, I, I, I think a lot of us know that green food and a lot of these good foods that we should be eating are good for us, but obviously making those changes in lifestyle and developing new habits is tough, especially with clean eating, making it taste good, all that stuff. Right. Um, have you found anything that has worked better than others in terms of truly transitioning someone from, let's say, eating a bunch of sugar to completely a, a clean long-term diet? Yeah, well, this has been my approach um, when it comes to food and health is that, first of all, um, so much of healthy eating in the past has been about fear, guilt, and shame. You're a bad person because you eat this. Don't do it. Okay. That's how, by the way, that's how a lot of doctors approach nutrition when they're talking to their patients with diabetes and a weight issue. You know, there's a there's a judgment to it. And I, I don't think that works. I think I don't think people like to be talked to, nor do they want to get that silent message that there is something that they should be ashamed of or guilt feel guilty about. So the way I try to do this is to start with meet people where they are. And what I basically say, look, if you want to be healthy. There's some great news. <clears throat> the great news is that you don't have to spend all your time eliminating foods from your diet and removing all the things that you like to eat. Let's start with what you already love that is also healthy for you. And that's why I wrote about my book, Eat to Beat Disease. There's more than 200 foods that activate your health defenses. So I tell people, let's go take a look at this list. There's 200 foods. Is there anything, pull out a Sharpie or a magic marker or you know, on your digital pad, and tag all the foods that you actually already like, you know? And if, I think if you look at 200 foods, you'll find stuff that you already like. Yeah, you know, I like this. I've had this before. That's pretty good. I'm pretty good. And I try to empower people to say, you know what? The stuff that you already like actually is healthy for you. So you're already way ahead of the game. And that's a good way to start getting people into this idea that they're not losers. They're already winners. You've already won. Okay. And then the next question is, well, so why are those good for you? Then you kind of take them in so that they can appreciate better, deeper, what it is that they already love and why it's good for them. Like, so then now they have a deeper appreciation of what they like. Then the next step is explore, you know, uh, this is like, you know, going onto the food channel, the discovery channel, let's go learn something new together. All right. And what's really cool is that, you know, you might've not, you might not have actually had um, uh, uh, red, yeah, red chard, or you might not have actually had manila clams, or you might not have had, but let's go on this journey. Let, let me tell you a little bit about it. 
And, and, and this is, by the way, where this whole connection of food and culture comes in. Every culture, and then we're all from some culture, where everybody's from somewhere, originates from somewhere, has some great stories. There's some value to some foods. And I want to get people connected to that. So it's really the opposite of kind of like white coat guru on a soapbox, waving a frond of kale, saying, you got to eat this or you're going to die. I sort of say, hey, man, what do you love to eat? And let me see if I can help you find something that you already like that's already good for you. And let's start there. I could see you doing like an Anthony Bourdain play where you travel the world, look at cultures and do that. Because it's interesting how certain cultures have more centarians, people living to 100 than others based on just like the habits. It's very fascinating. Yeah, you're talking about the blue zones. And uh, that's something my friend Dan Buechner, uh, who was writing for Nat Geo, um, really identified uh, some years ago is that there are places in the world where people live long and healthy lives. I, I tell you, there's like five of them, right? I think one's in Greece, one's in Italy, one's in California, Southern California, one's in um, Central America, and one's in Japan, all right? The one in Japan is in Okinawa, uh, and it's a little island. It's mostly seafood and, and, and a lot of vegetarians because they're, they're Buddhists there. And here's something that I think will take what you were saying about centenarians, uh, happy, healthy centenarians to the next level. Uh, in Okinawa, which is a blue zone where people routinely live to 100, um, uh, there is the, uh, there, there's the world's oldest rock group composed of women who are all over 100 that have a band and they tour and they basically play music. And so this is, you know, so we're not talking about somebody sitting, rocking back in a, in a nursing home someplace. We're talking about being able to really uh, aspire to, you know, live in the dream, getting to a place where you could be 100 years old and, you know, play music and go around tour and have, have fun. That's actually something that is possible. It's not, it's not improbable. In fact, people are doing it. Wow. It, when you look at all of the research you've done, and your famous TED talk, Can We Eat to Starve Cancer? Uh, you got over 11 million views on it. I mean, that must have been a, an amazing lead source to, for people to discover you. And all the times of you doing these research studies and, and learning, was there anything that you can think of that particularly blew your mind about the effects that food can have in helping people with cancer? And, and since the, you work with these patients, I mean, you see some of like the worst stuff. I'm sure you develop emotional bonds with people and you want to help them. What are some of your thoughts on, on some of those experiences that you can reflect on? Well, first of all, the human experience is the one that's most, um, most important to me, helping another individual uh, because I can is a privilege. And uh, so I take that really seriously. Um, and there's not, there's nothing more satisfying for me than be able to do something to make somebody else's life better. Uh, and, and that's how I'm wired. That's who I am in terms of, you know, like how research, um, has taken me on this journey where I, I realize things that make my jaw drop. Uh, you know, I mean, there are all these things about food that are absolutely, uh, mind-boggling in terms of what they can do. So for example, a study of 30,000 men showed that um, those men who eat cooked tomatoes, tomato sauce, only half a cup each time, two to three times a week, they have a 30% lower risk of developing prostate cancer. Why? Because tomatoes 
actually contain lycopene, and lycopene actually cuts off the blood supply, feeding cancers. Now, lycopene is a fat-soluble uh, chemical, so meaning it actually doesn't dissolve in water, it dissolves in oil. And so the best way to make that available is actually to cook tomato sauce in a little bit of olive oil. Now you're talking about Mediterranean diet, right? So again, like sort of coming back home, uh, you know, to roost and like traditional things, but that that statistic like made my jaw drop. Um, uh, I, I think the other things that are like really surprising is um, overturning urban legends in the food and health world. Many women feel and have heard uh, that soy is dangerous to eat if you're afraid of breast cancer because soy has a phytoestrogen and a phytoestrogen, a plant estrogen, it's gotta be dangerous for humans because some breast cancers respond to human estrogen. So why would you wanna do that? Stay away. Turns out that if you're a researcher, a, a, a biochemist, you look at phyto plant estrogens and human estrogens, they don't look anything alike. In fact, the plant estrogen blocks the human estrogen. It's like a natural estrogen blocker. And, and, and it's anti-androgenic, it cuts off the blood supply feeding breast cancer. So then, okay, well, all right, it's research, it's nice, but what about, I'm a woman, I, I don't wanna, you know, like if, if a woman's hearing that, they're like, well, if I'm caring about my own breast, so how do I, I'm not, that's not gonna make me wanna eat soy. All right, well, here, how about this one? Study of 5,000 women who are the most vulnerable, who already have breast cancer, has shown that those women who eat more soy, their risk of death goes down. And if they've had their breast cancer treated, the more soy they ate, the less chance their can breast cancer will come back. Amazing. And so wow. this is the power of food. How much soy do you need to have? About 10 grams of soy protein a day. How much is that? Easily achievable. That's what you get in one glass of soy milk. All right. So again, a mind-blowing thing. Last thing I'll tell you that is sort of like game-changing fact I, I, I realized from research it was a study of 700 pe people with stage three colorectal cancer, colon cancer, stage three, it spread, okay? They're getting treatment. And this was a study done by Duke and Harvard and all, you know, lots of fantastic name brand, top medical institutions. And they found that they studied um, uh, one intervention, which is the people who were eating tree nuts, almonds, pistachios, macadamias, um, uh, walnut, you name it, walnuts. And uh, they found that those people who ate two handfuls of tree nuts, it cut their uh, chances of death by 50%. Wow. That's not food versus medicine. That's food and medicine. It's not, nobody's saying to not go to your oncologist. Don't get cancer treatment. But what I'm saying is that it's the power of the things that we can do for ourselves between the visits to the doctor or between visits to the hospital that can make all the difference in the world. And that's really probably the take home I wanna leave you know, um, uh, your audience with is that food puts the power of health in our own hands. And that is something that your doctor can't do. I love it. Uh, I, I know we gotta wrap this up in a few minutes. There's one other question I'm curious about is, mushrooms so i recently watched this documentary called fantastic fungi it's it's brilliant and it goes about how mushrooms historically and fungi have been associated with decomposition and death and and things of that nature but really it's this breeding ground this neural network of potential crazy studies specifically turkey tail mushrooms and mm -hmm. how it's being used to help prevent and, and some other stuff have you done any research into that or do you have any thoughts on that absolutely so um well, first of all, mushrooms are like many 
plant-based foods that are out there in the natural world packed with a lot of different natural substances that can actually activate our body's health defenses. So um, I'm gonna talk about turkey tail in one second, but let's just go to the lowly white button mushroom that you could buy you know, at your local grocery store, right? Like um, just that white button mushroom that's just sitting out there by themselves. Turns out what that white button mushroom, like many mushrooms are, are a great source of soluble fiber, which is good for your gut microbiome, which is good for your gut health, which helps your immune system, which actually helps even your mental health, your emotional health, because the gut microbiome um, has a gut brain axis. But that um, that uh, soluble fiber uh, is actually called beta-D-glucan, improves your immune system, it cuts off the blood supply to cancer, it's cancer starving as well. That's even in a plain old white button mushroom. And it's also a good source of vitamin D which you know, about 40% of people in Western countries are deficient in vitamin D. It's actually a risk factor for developing severe COVID. And so here you have something even as simple as a white button mushroom that can actually give you health benefits. Um, by the way, you've heard that um, vitamin D, like you, you gotta go into the sunshine to get your own body to generate vitamin D, right? You've mm -hmm. heard that. Turns out if you want your mushroom that you buy from the store to give you more vitamin D, you slice it, put it onto a plate, stick it in front of a kitchen window where the sunlight's shining in and sunshine will activate the mushroom to create more vitamin D. In 15 minutes to two hours, you'll get a lot more vitamin D even before you cook it. So um, even this lowly white button mushroom. Now let's fast forward to the more sophisticated, more complex mushrooms, the medicinal mushrooms. So turkey tail is not really a food mushroom. It's not a culinary mushroom. It's a medicinal mushroom. It's been used in Asia and many other countries uh, for thousands of years. Um, it's Coriolis versicolor. Um, it's kind of a fungi, more than like a typical mushroom. And in it, there are all these other natural uh, polysaccharides. Um, and uh, some of the studies that I've done is that they actually are powerful inhibitor of cancer growth by cutting off the blood supply to tumors. And so there's a body of research that shows that you know that turkey tail mushrooms could be uh, really, really useful. Uh, uh, and, and this is at the research level. So I'm not telling people to go out with cancer to just buy turkey tail mushrooms. I think that this is the kind of research that I do. Where are the clues to something that could be breakthrough? How do we develop, do enough research to be sure that we're going in the right direction? And then how do you scale that up? So I think with turkey tail mushrooms, it's what you saw in that movie that you know, Paul Stamets is involved with, who's my, my friend. It's amazing, uh, like what mushrooms have. And of course, so the psychotropic, the psychedelic medications as well, um, the substances out of mushrooms, also kind of literally mind-blowing. Um, and so there's so much that we have yet to uh, fully uh, understand and, and, and leverage in our natural world that's where there's opportunity opportunity for people who are entrepreneurs. You know, I'm working on a bunch of projects now to figure out, you know, how do we actually take what's in the natural world? How do we actually uh, turn it into products? How do we actually make it um, uh, make people's lives better? Um, so, lots of projects going on. I love it, Dr. Lee. If you could go back in time for maybe when you're in med school and you could have talked to yourself and told yourself one, two, or three things that could have saved you a ton of time, money, heartache, headache just general life lessons to yourself. Is there anything you would say to yourself? Wow, okay. Um, I, I, you know, I, I would say, although I've done a lot of pretty um, audacious things for, you know, during my path of 
of, of, of medical training, I would say to have more confidence in your own ideas. Um, I'm a pretty confident guy, but you know, there were lots of times where I wasn't sure if this doing something that was off the beaten track was the right thing to do. You know, you kind of get into this debate in your head about like, should I, shouldn't I, is it the right thing? Is it the wrong thing? What are people going to say? I think this idea of like going back to your own gyroscope, like trusting your own instincts early is something that I would say, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, it's not like it would have helped me dodge any bullets, but it certainly would have made me um, uh, even more confident uh, at an earlier stage in my career. And I think that building confidence is a really important thing to do. I, I would say that or, and you, you can't build confidence until you take that risk. So go out there, try something, make sure that it's, you know, part of your own gyroscope. Um, think about the value you can create. Make sure that you're kind of giving it away to demonstrate that there's value, you know, let people see it, see it for yourself. And then you're in a good, then you're in a good position to be able to figure out like, what are you going to do with it now? Yeah. Dr. Lee, I appreciate you. This was fantastic. I could talk to you for another three hours about this. Maybe I get that chance in the future. If you ever come out to Miami, let me know. And uh, I'm looking forward for the people to hear this. So thank you so much for coming on the show. This was awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to another episode. Remember, hope is not a strategy. Keep making moves. Till next time, peace.